Uh, it's Christmas Eve. Uh, kids are ready. The little ones are ready. How many of you have little ones and are really excited about Christmas, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, all those things? Parents are exhausted and broke. <laughs> Grandparents are the only ones who are happy. Right? You guys are just thrilled. You're just excited about everything right now. Uh, Christmas Eve for my family was always amazing. Uh, we would go to my grandma's house. We'd go to my, my dad's mom's house. Uh, and uh, grandpa passed away when I was, uh, let's see, I was like an eighth grader. And so we would go and we would spend time there. My aunt was a missionary in China, and this is before technology, right? This is, I'm, I'm old. Kids, you wouldn't understand the world that I lived in. Uh, but we could talk to my aunt once a year, and it was on Christmas Eve. And so she was a missionary in China. We would get letters. That's how you talked to each other back then. Uh, and there wasn't Skype or Zoom or those kinds of things. You, you got that one phone call that cost you $80,000 to make that call. And, and so we would do one phone call a year. Everybody would get five minutes with my Aunt Cece on the phone. And she'd tell us about what was going on in China. And then she would always buy us like a goat or something in China, which... Looking back is great because it helps somebody, but when you're 10, like, you don't understand that the goat that was just purchased for you was given to someone in Kazakhstan, and so you're like, this is, this is the worst gift ever. I don't get to hang out with the goat. I don't get to spend any time with the goat at all. So she would tell us about the goat or whatever she had purchased for us that helps other people but did nothing for me, and we would try and act like good kids, like we were excited about that, but we were, never were. We were like, could you just give me a G.I. Joe figure? Like, that's what we really wanted. And then we would eat a meal. My grandma would always make ham. My grandma believed that I liked ham until the day that she died. I, I'm fine with a ham sandwich, just not like a giant ham, right? I just, I'm sorry for you ham people in the room. I, I just, it was not my thing. But grandma thought Ben loved the ham. And she would always like, let's get you some extra ham. And I was always like, daggone it, grandma. Uh, so we would eat large amounts of ham. We would all pack into my uncle's minivan. And uh, I don't know. I wish I, I should have gotten pictures. I was a kid at the stage when minivans were trying to be tiny apartments. Anybody remember this? Like they had curtains. Right? We were not thinking about creepers at all in this stage. Like we were, we were so innocent we were just like, yeah, let's put curtains. Let's make this fall into a bed. Let's put tables in here. Let's put lights around the whole place. So we, he had one of those like apartment vans. All the cousins would climb into it. We'd all jump in the back. We'd go to church. And it was a midnight service, right? So it was a late service. So we did this late service. And we weren't allowed to open presents until it was over, which was dumb. I don't know what my family was thinking. It was just poor decision making by my family because they, they were just, they were, had to be exhausted. So we would wait. The pastor would drone on and on. We were bored out of our mind. We didn't want, we, the only thing we liked was the candle because we were trying to catch each other on fire, the cousins, right? That was the only thing we enjoyed. And then we'd get to go home and we'd get to uh, open some presents with grandma. And then we'd go home to our house uh, at our house, we would go to sleep right away, probably before we got home is what would happen, and then wake up or very early. And my father was the, I, I've told this story before, my father was, was like a torture device on Christmas morning because what he would do is he would say, we would wake them up with strong uh, 
encouragement that we were not to go downstairs without him, right? Because I think they were worried we would open up all the presents without mom and dad. And so we would wake them up, and then my dad would say, okay, let me go downstairs and let me see if Santa's come. And my dad would go downstairs, and he was gone for hours. <laughs> I, I, I think he just had a cocktail. I think he was just sitting there, mimosas. I think he made a pancake breakfast for himself. He was gone for an eternity, and he would just randomly shout things like, oh, wow, looks like Santa came. This is going to be great. But I think my dad enjoyed the fact that my sister and I were just dying at the top of the stairs, waiting and waiting and waiting and anticipating, like, Christmas is here. The presents are here. Everything is here. I cannot wait to get downstairs, and he would just play it out for so long. It was torture every single year. Uh, waiting is a strange thing. Our, our family's in a weird waiting season right now. As uh, many of you guys know, uh, I, I announced to the church a few weeks ago that I'm resigning as pastor here. I'm going to be here for a few more months, uh, and then I'm going to step into something new. I don't know what that new thing is. And so we're in this weird waiting phase where I don't know what next year at Christmas will look like for us. I don't know what job I'll have. I don't know what we'll be doing. There's this weird anticipation of something good is to come, and I'm excited about it. There's this weird uh, hurting for what's been left behind, and there's this weird anticipation of what's to come. And we all live in this space of waiting. In one way or another, we live in the space between what's ahead and what's behind. We live in the space between what's in front of us and the exciting things that could be and, and th that we hope will be there in the future and, and the things that are behind us and, and that are there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, the blessedness of waiting is lost on those who can't wait. And the fulfillment of a promise is never theirs. They want quick answers to the deepest questions of life and they miss the values a value of those times of anxious waiting, seeking with patient uncertainties until answers come. They lose the moment when the answers are revealed in dazzling clarity. Isn't that good? Those who wait receive something beautiful. It's interesting, the whole Christmas story is about the, those who find Jesus are the ones who waited for him. It's Anna and Simeon. It's the shepherds, it's the wise men, it's those that were seeking, it's those that were waiting, it's those that were ready. Last week, Cameron Walker preached. Uh, Cameron's a good friend, and I, I love it when he teaches, and he, he talked about his son's birth, and it made me start thinking about Cole's birth. Uh, when, when Cole was born, Cole was born in Anderson, Indiana, which I just say to all of you, thank God for big city uh, doctors uh, and hospitals, uh, because ours wasn't great. Uh, and it was our first child, and we were nervous and excited, and Sarah was a champ, and she'd gone through labor, and, 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 and my sister was a NICU uh, nurse at the time. And so she was in the room with us just to kind of like give everybody comfort, make sure everything was okay. And so the time finally came, uh, Cole was born, and there was this moment of just like fury where there was lots of shouting there were people running in and out of the room and I looked at my sister and she was terrified and I was like something's not happening and I realized he wasn't breathing it was about 15 seconds it felt like an eternity it felt like sitting on the steps with my dad on Christmas morning it felt like the longest period of time 
ever. And I can just remember praying and saying, please, Jesus, please let him breathe. Please let him breathe. Please let him breathe. Please let him breathe. Uh, and he did. He, he led worship this morning, so he's doing great. <laughs> he's, he's really good at breathing now. He's, really, he's a really strong breather. But it felt like my whole world was waiting for one breath. Like everything in me hinged on that one breath. The Bible talks about Jesus coming with a hopeful anticipation of the breath of the Son of God. Romans chapter 8 says this, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory to, of the children of God. Creation waits. Isn't that beautiful? Like all of creation waited for the Son of God to be revealed. All of creation is still waiting and groaning. It actually talks about with the pain of childbirth for the sons and daughters, that's us, the followers of Jesus, to be revealed, to step into their places, to love and to serve and to bless and to care and to become the people of God in every space. Creation is waiting for those in despair. Something is coming. Everyone was waiting for that moment. Everyone was waiting for that moment. And the message of Advent is this. Hope is coming. Wait for it. For all of us, and I realize that that hits us in different places depending on what your year looked like, right? We're reaching the end of the year and we start looking back on our year. We start thinking about the highs and lows. I was at dinner the other night with some friends and they were like, we were celebrating my birthday, which is coming up in just a couple of days. And they said, let's, Ben, tell us your highs and lows. And I couldn't come up with anything. It was one of those weird years where it's just like, it's the year. I had surgery. I I'm here. I, I, I couldn't think through on the spot. I was really embarrassed. Like I couldn't think through highs and lows. So I just changed the subject and started talking about how bad the Bengals are or something like that. Like I just, I just got us not talking about something else. But I, 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 we have those years where there's like a definitive high. This year was amazing. I'm on the mountaintop. It was incredible. Everything I wanted happened. And then we have those years where it's like, I'm in the valley, I'm in the desert, I'm in the pit, like nothing went right, this was a terrible year. And so I recognize that in the room right now, there are those of you who are hoping from a place of despair and of pain and of hurt and of brokenness, and there are those of you who are hoping from a place of joy and excitement and passion. Reflecting on the death of his father, Parker Palmer, who's one of my favorite writers, said this. He said, a few months ago, my father died and he was more than just a good man to me. And these months have been long and hard. It's been like a winter for me. But in the midst of the ice and of the loss, I found a certain clarity that I lacked when he was alive. I see now what was concealed when the greenness of his love surrounded me. How I counted on him to help me to cushion life's harsher blows. I can't do that. He can't do that for me now. And at first I thought, I have to do this for myself but as time has gone on, I've seen something deeper still. It was never, never my father absorbing the blows of life for me, but a larger and deeper grace that he taught me to rely on. When my father was alive, I confused the teaching with the teacher. Now my teacher is gone, but the grace is still there. 
and my clarity about the fact has allowed his teaching to take a deeper root in me. Winter clears the landscape, however brutal it is, giving us a chance to see ourselves and each other more clearly, to see the very ground of our being. Uh, in the South, I don't know that we all understand real winter. I, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, we go to the Midwest. I'm about to, like, December 26th, we will drive to Ohio. It is a barren, terrible land. <laughs> right? It is, it, my toes will be cold the entire time that we're there. I, my, I, I have literally acclimated to the South now. Like I, my toes will never get warm when I am in Ohio. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how many socks I wear. I am cold the entire time. Uh, I've never worn a winter coat the entire time we've lived here. I put on jackets, right? I don't even think most of y'all don't even know what a winter coat is, right? You've never even had to own one. You, you've not, most of you don't own a snow shovel, and if you do, you've used it once, and it was a wasted purchase, right? You certainly don't have machines, right, that cost thousands of dollars to clear your drive with, electric things. If you do, you're really wasting money. Uh, I've been here for eight years. It snowed once, uh, and I don't even know if I would call that snow. It was more like it, there was frost, uh, like that. But, but when, you're, when you're in the Midwest, there's this advice that's given to folks. And, and, and the wintertime advice is the winters will drive you crazy unless you learn to get outside. And so you buy warm winter coats and you buy all the things so that you can be outdoors a little bit because you'll get this cabin fever. And so you spend good money so that you can avoid that cabin fever and, and huddling away fearfully for, through the whole winter. And, and, and you fortify your spirit by saying, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to walk outside. I'm going to take the dog for a walk. I'm going to do something outdoors. And you're outside for a little while. A little while. And, and our winters take the same kind of shape. They take many forms. Failure, betrayal, depression, death, sickness. But every one of them yields the same advice. The winters will drive you crazy if you don't get out in them. And even if you've experienced a terrible season and a terrible year, if we don't allow ourselves to get into the grief, to sit in the pain, to slow down, to not ignore it, to not huddle in despair against it, but to name it and to surrender it to God, we'll never heal from it. And so if you are one of those folks who's, who's like, I don't want to hear another pastor talk about hope. I don't want a cliche. I don't want a, a, a cliched quote or a cliched Bible verse. Like, my life hurts, and there's real pain and real anguish and real difficulty in my life right now, and I don't need another cliched sermon. I want you to know there is something worth waiting for. Creation waits with eager anticipation. The whole world, the ground, the rocks, the mountains, the sky, the waters, the birds, the humans, all of us wait in eager anticipation for the sons and gods of, daughter, of, of God to be revealed. Whatever you do, don't miss it. Have this hopeful expectation that God is right around the corner. I had a friend who had this amazing resiliency and it almost came off sometimes like naivety. You know what I'm talking about? 
where something terrible would happen in his life, and he would always say this, and I always thought, like, this guy's lying. But he would always say this, I can't wait to see what God has in store for this one. Something really bad would happen, and he'd be like, wow, the redemption story here is going to be really cool. He always had this hopeful expectation that God was right around the corner. And I think it's hard for us to live that way. It's much easier for me to be cynical. Are you with me? It's much easier for me to say, oh, another thing, another bad time, another difficult moment, something else is coming around the corner. I'm sure something's gonna break in my car next week, right? I'm sure something's gonna happen. But there is an invitation to wait with hopeful expectation. The verse goes on, it says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, our, for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting. The whole world is groaning with anticipation of the hope of Jesus. Are you with me? We can see it all over the place. Just watch the evening news. You can just see the groans of our earth, the pain of our sin-stained world, the, the difficulty of our choices, all of these things, and we're groaning, wishing things were better. We're hoping, wishing things were resolved. We, we get the news of another school shooting. We get the news of, of another catastrophe. We get the news of, of, of something else that we're not supposed to be afraid of. We get the news of terrible politicians on both sides of the aisle, don't Email me, right? But we get, we get the news of all of these things that are coming, and we live in this fear and anxiety and frustration over and over and over again. But there is a hoping. So, so what are you hoping for? Is it a relationship to be resolved? Is it a sickness to be healed? Is it a sadness to be taken care of? Is it change that you desperately need? Is it a promise that's unfulfilled? Well, just like the people of God in this time, God doesn't answer our hope in the way that we would hope he answers it. Because what I want is quick solutions. And what Jesus gives me is his presence. What I want is answers. And what Jesus does is he sits with me. What I want is quick fixes. And Jesus wants to fix the whole system slowly. What I want is comfort. And what Jesus wants is for me to grow. What I want is happiness. And what Jesus wants is my heart. So the invitation of Advent is really simple. It's this phrase, come Lord Jesus. You say it with me? Come Lord Jesus. This is the invitation of Advent Come into our brokenness, come into our hurt, come into our pain, come into our grief, come into our joy, come into our happiness, come into our lives, come into Cobb County, come into Wheeler High School, come into East Cobb Middle School, come into this space because when you show up, there is hopeful expectation that everything is going to change. The Bible actually ends with this phrase, come Lord Jesus. Revelation 22.20 says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen. And the people said, come, Lord Jesus. It ends with this prayer. 
It's a prayer that's been echoed in Advent hymns over and over again. We sing it every year. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We don't say Emmanuel came. We say keep coming, keep showing up, keep entering in, keep breaking through, keep showing us your glory and your goodness. Christians have prayed from the earliest days. The oldest Christian prayers we know, other than the Lord's Prayer, all have this phrase in it somehow over and over again. It's come Jesus or come Lord. Paul quotes it in the original Aramaic, the word Maranatha, which means come Lord. And he expects his Greek-speaking readers in the church to know and understand what that means, which must mean that this was part of their normal liturgy. It was something that the church said over and over and over again. And so in Revelation 22, when it says, come, Lord Jesus, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And all of Revelation says, yes, please, please come. Please come back. Please return. And I'm not talking about the Left Behind series here, right? Like, we can wait on that, and that's going to be beautiful. And that's, I, there, there's, well, maybe not Left Behind, but like what the Bible actually says. There's, there's things there that are going to be great when Jesus returns. The, the question is, do we long for Jesus to come into our everyday life? Do we want him to walk into those spaces? I, I love Jesus' image. Jesus called the church his bride, right? And, and, and the, the phrase that Jesus used uh, was this. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Remember this? No one will know the time or the hour, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, I, a lot of people don't know what he's talking about is first century marriage in that time. So in the first century, when you were married, especially particularly wealthy families, when you were married, you would pay a dowry to uh, get your wife. I don't know exactly how that worked. Some cows, some, I don't know what else they were trading on at that time, some Bitcoin. Deb Brock can help you out with that. Like, there's, those things were all going on. Like, that stuff was happening. And so the, there's, there was this, like, trading of things that was going on. Uh, and then what would happen is, the husband would go and prepare a place for his wife. So they would be engaged, but the husband would leave, and then he would go and actually build a house, right? Some of us would really struggle with this segment uh, of, of things, right? We would need to have really good friends. I would be calling Ryan T. instantly. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, buddy. Come help me, All right? We, but you, go, you would go, and normally on your families, wherever your family lived, you would add a, a segment to the house that was your part, or you would add a portion to the... To the whatever the compound was where your family lived and all your brothers and sisters would continue to live there. And so you would go and you would prepare a place there. And the bride wouldn't know the date of her wedding, right? So there was not little what save the date things that were being sent out. There was no like mixing of the two names together to make some kind of fun thing that you can hashtag. They were not doing the hashtags back then. None of that stuff was happening. They didn't know when the wedding was. And so the bride would wait and watch. They actually would have lookouts that would be near the house who would give them like, I think it's pretty close to being done. It feels like he's doing the drywalling now. Like they've done the electric and the plumbing. Like I think we're really close. And so they would, like she's getting ready. 
And so what would happen then is the whole family, the brothers, everybody, they would dress up and they would parade to the wife's house. And she would be ready because they would warn her, right? They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Think about this, though. If you're this bride, the greatest day of your life is coming. You're so excited. There's this huge anticipation of my husband is coming. He's prepared a place for me. I get to go see this house. This would never work in our time, right? I, we, we, I, I actually bought our house here in Georgia without my wife seeing it. Uh, but we did lots of videoing and lots of pictures. There was a lot going on in there. But we, there's this thing of like everybody's waiting. There's this anticipation. This is what Jesus says the metaphor is. I've gone and prepared a place for you. I'm coming back. And when I do, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a celebration. And so when we read Revelation, we read it with the knowledge that waiting equals hoping. That waiting is hoping. That we hope for Jesus to come in. We hope for Jesus to break through. We have this heartfelt prayer that the bride is us and that the lamb is returning and that something beautiful is happening. This is why Christmas matters, guys. We've been talking about full. And the thing that I want most for us to experience at Christmas is for us to be hopeful. There is a hope that comes in the knowledge that Jesus came once, that he's coming back, that he's good, that he's faithful, that he's with us, that he's present and he's at work. So where do you need to invite him to come right now into your life? Where are things not as they should be? Where are things broken and you need Jesus to heal and make better? Where has the hope run dry? Where have you tried every solution imaginable and found all of your own work longing and lacking? Where are you waiting with eager anticipation for the hope of Jesus to enter into your life? And here's the good news. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. He's not hiding. He's there. He's been there all along. It's, 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 not that, it's not that God isn't present. It's that we're not aware of his presence. He's there. He's waiting. He's knocking. He's gently whispering. The beauty of Jesus is that he doesn't demand our attention. He waits to be invited. And so my question for us today on Christmas Eve is where's the area of your life where you need to invite Jesus? Where's the area of your life where you need to say, Come now, long expectant one, with healing in your wings, and bring grace and bring peace. He's gently whispering. He's asking us to surrender, and he's inviting himself in. So we're going to stop. We're going to kind of let the band come up. We're going to take communion. There's communion stations spread out all over the room, and I want you to think about the last year. I want you to think about your season. I want you to think about the waiting and the hoping that you've been waiting for. And I want you just to quietly invite Jesus to come into that hoping. Where's the area of your life where you need to invite him to come? So Heavenly Father, we ask you to come. We live with a hopeful expectation that you're good and that you're with us and that you're near and that you love us. And we ask you to move. 
And so where things aren't as they should be, we ask that you move. We also ask that you move us into those spaces, that we become your hands, that we become your feet, that we become the voice of God, that we become the touch of God, that we become the love of God, that we become the light of the world that you've called us to be because we are the ones who enter into broken places and make things new and make things right. And so Jesus, I pray right now in the quietness of this room, on this Christmas Eve morning, that you would stir our hearts towards the things that you desire for us and that you would give us the courage to invite you in. We thank you, Lord.